Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Jilla. And you can find more details on the show at christianjilla.com slash podcast. Not too many links this week. I'm actually on holiday, so I haven't really been following the tech news very much. But I have a, a few articles that caught my eye. Most of them around uh, diet and food and sort of personal improvement. Maybe that's what's been on my mind whilst I have been on holiday. And then I will share some information with you about my new show, The Enthusiastic Amateur, that is really, really, really ready to be released. I'm just putting some final edits to the first couple of episodes, getting the website up, etc., etc., and how you can be involved with that. But first, let's start with a few links. I have been reading quite a bit recently on the history of trade, the history of slavery, the history of empire, and they're all somewhat connected, and especially so with the history of sugar. So this article from Savour by Christy Mucci caught my eye, the illustrated history of how sugar conquered the world, which explained a few interesting things to me about sugar, this, uh, this ingredient that we're all so paranoid about having too much of and how it came to be. Uh, obviously, history started, well, not, not obviously, but sweetening kind of started with honey, the most natural of sugars you can find, quite some time ago, about 10,000 BC. And sugar is something a lot more recent um, about 8,000 BC originally, um, but the first sugar mill actually not until about 100 AD. Interestingly, we think of a sugar cane, but sugar cane is not where we get most of our sugar from these days. And actually more recently, from about the 1700s onwards, um, we now increasingly so get our sugar from beets, which are uh, easier to grow, cheaper to grow, etc., etc. And in between that 1700 years of history that I just skipped. <laughs> there was lots and lots of uh, history you can read more about in this article of sugar uh, involving uh, especially people from India and the Arab world. And this ties very nicely into a book I've been reading recently, the Silk Road book, um, which has been quite popular in recent years, which talks a lot about east-west trade and the conflicts that uh, that trade have produced. Um, a fascinating book if uh, that sort of topic interests you. The Greeks and the Romans used sugar in lots of their recipes. I guess they got it from their trade with the East. The Arabs around 650 AD start bringing sugar to the rest of the world, using it as medicine, um, but also as a delicacy that uh, there was then a, an expensive good. The Crusades come a bit later when the Europeans discover this wonderful white powder that makes everything taste amazing. And from then on, it grows and gets taken to the New World, which brings us to the horrible history of sugar and slavery, of course. And then more recently, from the 1800s onwards, the Industrial Revolution, the industrialization of sugar, which is uh, has now largely gone in the West. Um, if you've ever been to the Tate galleries in the UK... Not many people actually realise that Tate comes from Tate and Lyle, a big sugar company. Um, and my dad used to live near one of their ex-factories that was basically the lifeblood of the whole small town, and now it has gone. Um, so the sugar industry uh, that came to the West has largely gone again. And then finally, actually around the 1940s, it's suddenly discovered, nearly 2,000 years, no, more than 2,000 years later, depending when you look at the birth of sugar from, that sugar isn't all that good for you. <laughs> we then start to invent um, artificial sweeteners and use those a bit more, which are also not really that good for you either. And we're finally now almost back full circle, which is where the article concludes 
on going back to natural sweetness again. So quite fascinating, some great little pictures as well. Um, it's worth just a quick flip through to see those. On the subject of sugar is alcohol. Uh, this is actually uh, an article from NPR by April Fulton and Alison Aubrey on breaking the booze habit. Um, I, I mean, I have to admit, I do like alcohol. I find soft drinks kind of boring, and this is one of the main reasons I continue to drink. Um, there's obviously a lot, of, a lot of other aspects that I would be naive to say uh, don't, con do, don't contribute, but I just like the taste of different beers, different wines, the subtleties of different whiskies, these sorts of things. Uh, and if there were more interesting soft drinks, I would maybe drink them more if I could get more into herbal teas, etc. So this article details some uh, alcohol-free bars, mostly in New York. Um, I'm guessing they're spreading around the world. I'd love to see some more uh, where I live. Bringing um, different mocktails, different, different, well, difference, I suppose, to soft drinks too. So you don't just go into a bar with your friends and have a Coke or a Diet Coke or a juice, but you can actually get things a bit more interesting, a bit more variety, a bit more experimentation. And that would probably encourage me to drink less or drink less alcohol. Also, the caveat, of course, from the previous link of uh, often a lot of these can be quite sugary. I mean, alcohol is also sugary, but in a different sort of way. It depends what you're drinking as well, of course. And the article doesn't really talk about that. It's one of the main problems with a lot of alternatives to alcohol is they're quite sweet. Um, even juice, too much. Juice is also a lot of sugar. So it's interesting to see that now as younger generations drink less, this will probably become uh, more and more popular. But I suppose we need to, to take care that we don't get addicted to what we're replacing the alcohol with, which is not always that good for us either. A lot of sugary drinks, energy drinks, uh, fatty drinks that um, are not necessarily, well, they're, they're better for us in some ways, but uh, worse for us in other ways too. So I'm interested to see how this develops actually. Um, and it would certainly be something I'd be willing to try myself more when there are more interesting alternatives. And next on the diet train, an article from Matthew Hughes in the next web. Is it time for technology conferences to ditch meat? I found this interesting for a few reasons. I, mean, I don't know what sort of conferences Matthew has been to, but I have found actually that a lot of conferences are not uh, having as much meat. Um, I think it sometimes, depending on the event, of course, it's just easier not to. Um, even if some people will complain about a lack of meat, everyone will eat vegetables, <laughs> even if they don't really want to. Um, so sometimes it's just an easier option. Um, but this is talking about the, the general reasons why, the motivations why, I suppose, to be healthier. Uh, it's cheaper, it's less waste, it's more accommodating, etc. Um, but I have also been to conferences, uh, slightly contradicting what I just said, where people will complain that there is no meat. Uh, I have noticed, especially the further east you go, at least in Europe, and to the more techie conferences and the more male-dominated conferences, I will say this, that they tend to eat a little bit like cavemen and eat nothing but meat and carbs. Um, I have often looked at the plates of developers around me to see nothing but yellow-orangey food, meats, potatoes, chips, bread, etc., etc., whereas I'm usually sat there with a pile of salad. I mean, I don't actually eat meat because I don't really like it anymore, but it is interesting sometimes to see the reluctance of some people to eat vegetables. It could be you're at a conference, you're on a holiday, you feel like having a day off from being healthy. Maybe there's a little bit of that. 
you don't always want a guilt trip when you've spent $500, euros, pounds to go to a conference. There's possibly a little bit of that. You want just a little bit of time to indulge in your coffee and your cakes and your luxuries. Um, I guess those of us who are lucky and fortunate enough to go to lots of conferences, you, you know, it's like uh, always being in hotels. Hotel breakfasts are great until you have your fifth of the week and they're not so interesting anymore and you realise that they're not even that great for you. So, you know, sometimes um, those of us who, who get this more regularly maybe are more critical because uh, it's less of a novelty. But still, it's, it's interesting um, to read this and to read that it's being spoken about in the broader uh, discussion. And, I mean, he specifically focuses on tech conferences, but I don't see why it couldn't apply to any conference, really. Uh, it just so happens that I guess the both of us only go to tech conferences. It's a short post. I'd be interested to hear uh, your ideas. Um, should it be forced? Should it just be encouraged? Etc. Etc. And finally, a post. Uh, I, this is actually from 2013. I'm not entirely sure why this showed up on my feed. I don't know what anyone is trying to tell me here. This is from the Wait But Why uh, blog by Tim Urban. 20 things I learned whilst I was in North Korea. I've had a few friends who've been to North Korea. This uh, seems to have become a trend recently. This sort of, I'm calling it car crash tourism, but I don't think that's necessarily correct. But I guess uh, extreme tourism, um, like people going to Chernobyl and things like that, trying to go to places for an authentic experience. Although um, I don't know if going to the uh, going to uh, an isolated dictatorship or the site of a nuclear disaster is particularly authentic, especially in North Korea. But um, I was just wanting different experiences, I suppose. Um, I've had a few friends who have been. Um, it's a very strange experience. <laughs> uh, I read through this post. I shared it with my friends who'd been. They both uh, said that it was pretty accurate. Um, some of the things that jumped out at me um, were the, the forced paths that tourists are uh, made to follow, the fact that they mostly all have to stay in one hotel, the, the god-slash-cult-like status of their leaders. Uh, and interestingly, the current leader is not even as well-respected in comparison to his parents and grandparents, but he's still very well-respected, <laughs> but not as, not as much respected, which must also kind of be strange for him, I would think, sometimes. And you see pictures of him everywhere, um, lies everywhere, facts or propaganda, I suppose, is the real word for this, uh, massaging the truth. The fact that the tourist hotel is on an island, so you can't even really leave, even if you wanted to try, because um, if you tried, there would probably be someone stopping you pretty quickly. The interesting uh, one he mentions, and both my friends who visited were not American, but they will often refer to the American imperialists, even when they're speaking to Americans, with kind of no sense of irony or shame, which, <laughs> which must be quite a bizarre experience for Americans. You don't call North Korea North Korea, you call it Korea. I don't know what they call South Korea, but anyway. Um, another aspect is the fancy and shittiness of the place. I noticed this when I was in Belarus, actually, which is also a sort of a dictatorship, how shiny and clean it was. But when people told me why it's shiny and clean, i.e. anyone who commits any sort of misdemeanor is made to clean up the streets, um, it shed a new light on that shiny and cleanliness. And I would imagine that it's something similar in North Korea. Everyone with the same uniforms, there's lots of strange buildings, etc., etc., and many, many more interesting little factoids you can go and have a look at.
And that was my links for the week. Just a little short selection this time. And now is my interview with Marco Palladino of Kong, where we talk about their current offerings for uh, microservice meshes, API management, auto-generating and testing documentation, all sorts of interesting things. I think Marco had a watch on or something like that, because, uh, and I think he was gesticulating a fair bit as he was speaking, because there's a clunking on the desk quite a lot, which uh, was kind of hard to edit out, so do forgive me for that, but enjoy the interview. Yeah. Uh, so, Chris, my name is Marco Palladino. I'm the co-founder and CTO of Kong. Yeah. So, Kong, uh, you, you know, you said you're familiar with Kong. Uh, Kong was born in 2015 as an open source project. And 2015 was uh, a very particular year because that was a year after Kubernetes came out. It was a couple of years after Docker came out. And, you know, the world was already moving towards this new trend of microservices away from the legacy monoliths. Mm. So, I mean, this is, so I, I come from a background predominantly of a very variety of things, but one of those is as a, a, a tech writer. Um, so I've encountered Kong because you're often an API gateway used uh, by many projects. Um and I suppose my encounter with that had been more of a sort of developer portal slash rate limiting slash kind of account management for uh, APIs. Is that something you still do or has the business pivoted? Well, Kong as both the company and the product have been evolving a lot in the past four years. So we did start as an open source API gateway. And by that, I mean, we were primarily handling north-south traffic, uh, ingress traffic, and providing a full cycle API management on top of that. But then over the years, we've also added support for more low-level networking features. In fact, Kong today can be also a service mesh for east-west traffic. So, you know, the, the thing is, as we're, you know, the, there are two different concerns. As we're decoupling our monoliths into microservices, we're going to be having two main problems. Number one, we're going to be having a networking problem. All right, so we have all of these different services talking to databases, talking to other systems, to other APIs. How do we make sure that the network, which is fundamentally unreliable, the network can be slow, the network can fail, the network is unsecure. How do we make the network reliable again? And that's what Service Mesh wants to provide for pretty much every traffic within the data center. And there is a subset of that traffic that it's going to be API traffic that needs to be offered to either other teams enabled to third-party developers, to external partners. And for that subset of traffic, Kong provides a traditional full-cycle API management with the developer portal, with you know, the onboarding process and so on. So Kong is being used for service mesh to secure and manage all the traffic within a microservice-oriented architecture and then it can be used as a north-south ingress gateway for that subset of traffic that has to be offered via an API to some other developers. So it's both use cases. The reason why I say that service mesh is primarily a networking use case is because you know, with service mesh, what we are really concerned about is the network. So we want to implement policies that allow us to route the traffic, but it's not just HTTP traffic, any traffic can be Postgres traffic, can be Kafka traffic, can be Redis 
traffic, right? It can be any traffic we have in the data center. We want to enable that traffic. We want to secure it. We want to observe it. We want to trace it. And these are very typical networking L4, if you wish, concerns. And then on top of these L4 traffic, we want to be able to open up the API to, for example, another business unit and another team or a mobile application. And so for doing all those things, we need to jump into L7 to protect and secure that traffic that can be, for example, gRPC, can be HTTP, you name it. And for that traffic, we need to have a, a life cycle. Now, quite honest, honestly, the same life cycle we have for traditional APIs in, in a north-south capacity, quite frankly, that's a life cycle that over time we really want to bring into our uh, L4 services as well. I mean, when we do release a new API and we create a life cycle for you know, deprecating an API, versioning an API, and so on and so forth, well, quite frankly, we want to have that even for any other service within our data center. So what Kong is doing, it's providing a full cycle API management that can work or a service control platform, how we call it, that can work on both north-south and east-west traffic, on both L7 and L4, and enforce that full life cycle, not just when it comes to traditional API management, you know, APIs that are on the edge, but when it comes to pretty much every API or service that runs in infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so the yeah. service control platform, yeah, yeah, yeah. doesn't no, resonate I, with you. Yeah, I think that's, it's, I guess, uh, APIs endpoints were kind of the way we did things a few years ago. And now they're still there, of course, but service meshes and microservices are, um, and service discovery, I suppose, are kind of the more modern way um, we're doing this now. So you offer uh, a solution for people who have a bit of a mixture of those, maybe companies who want to move from the more traditional model to the newer model. And as they move to the new model, they have to support platform agnosticity. So this is one of the biggest differences between Kong and everybody else. Everybody else, they usually focus very well on one platform, let's say Kubernetes, Mm. but they they forget that this is a journey. So while Kubernetes is going to be the end state or the end goal, you know, for running all our software, it's a journey. And the journey from virtual machines to Kubernetes in that journey, we have to support both. Mm-hmm. So while Kong, it's a very good first-class citizen with Kubernetes. In fact, we provide Kubernetes sidecar injection. We provide Kubernetes ingress controllers. You know, we are working very well within Kubernetes. And 50% of our enterprise customers are running Kong in production on Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. While we do that, we also understand that we have to support other platforms as part of this journey. An enterprise organization, it's not going to transition to Kubernetes overnight. And so in this journey, we want to provide security and observability and all the things that we we provide, the service control platform, we want to provide that not just for Kubernetes, but for other architectures and other infrastructures as well. Mm -hmm. And sometimes this is inevitable. I mean, the enterprise might decide to move to microservices, but there is always going to be something that's never going to transition or that doesn't make any sense to transition, right? Mm -hmm. And so the company, the organization will become a multi-platform because really it has to be that way because some things will never change because some things are too painful to change or they make no business sense to invest into transitioning them to microservices. And so because we understand that, 
we provide a platform agnostic platform that can run on Kubernetes, can run on containers, can be very fast, very lightweight, but most importantly, it can connect these new greenfield applications running on Kubernetes with a legacy brownfield that's running somewhere else. Yeah. And that is a very pragmatic, pragmatic vision that we pursue with Kong. And this is really why we are able to get so much traction within enterprise deployments because we are, we're not idealistic. We're very pragmatic when it comes to this. Yeah. Let's actually dig yeah. into this service mesh a little bit more. Service meshes were talked about a lot at KubeCon this year. Um, is the Kong service mesh uh, an offering of one of the known service mesh products or is it one of your is it your own or is it a combination what what exactly is the the kong service mesh yeah so service mesh the service mesh that we have built uh it's built on top of our runtime you know our runtime has a few characteristics um it's fast it's pluggable can be extended with plugins with new policies very easily and so on so we built a service mesh on top of our technology such as we can handle east-west traffic. Mm -hmm. Now, when we think about service mesh, it's very important to notice that service mesh is not a technology. Service mesh is a pattern. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, we can implement it with different technologies in different ways, right? And uh, we provide a way to deploy Kong in that pattern by um, offering, you know, sidecar injection uh, for Kubernetes, for example, in order to be able to automate how the traffic is being secure, traced, observed across the, the data center. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a platform agnostic service mesh, which means that with Kong, you can create a service mesh in Kubernetes or even in multiple clusters of Kubernetes. But at the same time, you can also very easily deploy Kong on a traditional virtual machine, for example, or bare metal even, mm-hmm. and also make those legacy projects part of the mesh very easily. Because again, everything we do is platform agnostic. So I could also see that you have uh, on the feature list uh, integration with things like serverless, multiple clouds, and also multiple control planes. So multiple service meshes as well um, can all be handled. Correct. So, you know, the organization, I think, uh, you know, I think of the, I'm an enterprise organization. It's like a very complex organism, right? Mm -hmm. Each team as different products, they all have their own business requirements and they are, they are all going to be adopting technologies and clouds and architectures that in a way allows the team to pursue their business goals, right? So we're going to be having in an enterprise organization, we're going to be having teams running on AWS, we're going to have teams running on Azure, we're going to be having teams running on legacy monolith as well as microservices. We are a product that can be it's being adopted by the teams, but most importantly, it's a product that can also expand within the organization across all of these different use cases. That mm-hmm. was very important for Khan. So we do support different architectures, so monolithic microservices. And for each one of these verticals, we support the emerging ecosystems that are defining the vertical. So for, in the case of microservices, we do support, for example, we integrate with popular CNCF ecosystem projects like Think of Zipkin, think of Jaeger, think of, uh, uh, you know, open tracing, think of Prometheus, think of Grafana, and so on. Of course, there's going to be pockets of adoption of serverless within the organization. And when we think of serverless, really, we're thinking of a function that can be, that can be invoked, can be called by uh, either as a, uh, you know, either by processing a queue or by 
directly consuming that function. And if you directly consume the function, well, that's an API endpoint effectively. That's where it is. It's an API endpoint that we don't scale because the cloud provider will scale it for us. And so in the serverless vertical, we do support, for example, AWS Lambda, we do support OpenFast, and so on. Mm. Uh, In fact, the community has also been creating integrations with Google Cloud Functions and Azure Functions as well. Those integrations, while they are available in the community, they have not been published yet in our Kong Hub, which is our uh, hub for integrations. Yeah, and I can see actually... Across the board, you do have sort of official integrations plus lots of community ones. Just looking at the service mesh, um, one of, answered one of my questions. I was wondering if you supported other orchestrators, and you do support DCOS, which I know is is very much uh, second place to Kubernetes right now, but it's still out there. So, <laughs> um, and and Kubernetes, you know, Chris, yeah. the thing is, the thing is, uh, you know, the technology evolves, right? Oh, so yeah. we don't. <laughs> We don't know what's going to happen five years from now. We, as a company, we don't want to identify ourselves with any specific technology or trend, Mm. but we want to be a pragmatic organization that can support emerging trends, enabling our customers to do the things they want to do whenever they want to do that, right? Mm. And so uh, today, yesterday was the COS, today's Kubernetes. Who knows what emerging trend will come five, 10 years from now? The, the The vision as a founder, the vision for this organization it's to build a strong independent company. Mm. And in order to be able to build a strong independent company, we need to be able to create, we need to be able to embrace market transitions. Mm. So as, as a product and as a company, we're going to be that strategic partner to our users, to our customers, in order to be able to enable, enable them into those market transitions whenever mm. they have, right? That's, that's really something, that, that's the overall goal from an organizational standpoint if you wish from a vision standpoint so and let's let's dig in uh just a little bit into the the kubernetes ingress so i guess is this this would be what you were at kubecon to promote is is this new is it uh has it been around for a little while or the kubernetes uh, integration has been around for a while okay so we you know kubernetes we work with uh we contribute into the ecosystem. We, uh, we're also going to be looking forward to take a bigger and bigger role mm-hmm. within the ecosystem. In fact, uh, we have upgraded our sponsorship to CNCF from, uh, I think, silver or bronze mm-hmm. to gold. So now we are um, a gold sponsor in CNCF. We have announced that at KubeCon. Okay. Um, and we are basically there because that's our community. Right, mm. that's um, that's a part of our, our community. But for example, you can find us at KubeCon as well as you can find us at AWS Reinvent. Right, so we are where our users and where our customers are because we integrate with those ecosystems. Yeah, and so just to just to clarify what the offering is um, for anybody, this is not a is it a, is it a managed Kubernetes or is it um, what actually is Kubernetes Ingress from, from Kong? Uh, you, do you run your own installations? Do you manage other installations? What's the, what's the offering? Both Kong and Kong Enterprise can be downloaded and self-managed on top of any platform, including Kubernetes. Right? Okay. So the developer okay. wants to use, if, if the developer already has a Kubernetes cluster, they can then run their own Ingress controller, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kong, they can run it on top of their own cluster. Now, with that said, 
We do also offer a managed Kong Cloud uh, offering for those enterprise customers that do not want to manage and scale the systems themselves, but they want us to scale that for them, basically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's only for our enterprise. The, the cloud offering, it's only for Kong Enterprise, but primarily any developer or you know architect or operator who wants to use the Ingress, they can go on the Ingress repository and, and run it. Mm-hmm. It's simple. Are, are there any other differences between the open source and the enterprise? Oh, yeah. So okay. open source, Kong, it's an open core company. Yep. So yep. we provide an, a, a core that's open source. Uh, it's on GitHub. Anybody can download and use. In fact, we have, uh, we're getting close to a, a million running data planes uh, per month in the world, right? So Kong has adoption. It's very large. We have a very large community. Um, in fact, we do have, uh, let me think about it. We have 40,000. 40,000 community members that are involved in the, in the community in some ways and, or another. They're either contributing to the ecosystem, they're using Kong, they're, uh, uh, they're basically you know, answering questions about Kong and so on. Mm-hmm. So the community is quite large because you know, that's the power of open source. And the core provides all the things you would expect from a core. So it provides uh, routing features, traffic control features, authentication features. It's quite of a complete offering, the open source offering. Mm-hmm. But... If we are looking forward into consolidating how the teams are going to be working together, if we look forward to implement role-based access control among those teams, if we want to have the full cycle service control platform, which includes the developer portal, which includes the you know the, the full life cycle, uh, then that's part of the enterprise platform. Mm-hmm. The service control platform, uh, which is our enterprise stack, you know, all it's a it's a way to intelligently broker the flow of information across the enterprise. So it's not just for traditional RESTful APIs, it's for any service in a north-south or a east-west capacity, as well as um, we provide machine learning features that automatically document the APIs that Kong is proxying and also detect anomalies in the traffic that we're processing. Because Kong, it's both a data plane and a control plane, mm-hmm. and if it's a the data planes on the execution path of every request. So for those requests, we can generate uh, machine learning models to determine anomalies within the traffic. Actually, I just want to dig into that a bit more because obviously the the developer portal is where I first encountered Kong quite some time ago, and it does look like things have changed a little bit. Um, and this is a, a question that's actually come up a few times, um, uh, especially in tech writer circles, like how to document microservice-based applications because you have multiple sources of code, for example. You mentioned there that you uh, auto-document API sources. Um, but how, how, how deep can that go? Can you also, does it, can you also source uh, the documentation, the readmes, for example, of microservices? Um, does it pull in all these sources or is it just kind of REST endpoints? Well, so today we have started with open API spec support. So if there is any HTTP RESTful API, for example, let's say that there is a, a monolith that the, it's part of our system and we want to, for example, start decoupling the monolith into uh, bigger, you know, into services. Um, we don't know what the monolith does. So you can put Kong in front of that traffic, you can profile the traffic, and then you can auto-generate documentation for all the endpoints that we're seeing 
uh, that are being consumed by any client. And you can take that as a starting point to decouple that monolith into separate services. As well as, well as you know, documentation. The thing about microservices is that microservices, they increase the scale of things that are running in our systems. It's not a handful of monoliths anymore. It's hundreds, thousands of services. And for each service, we're going to be having different versions. So we're talking about a bigger scale of uh, you know, complexity even, if you wish. And uh, in this new world, documentation, it's not just you know, something that's nice to have. It's something that we must have because the documentation becomes the, I call it the trust, the trust authority that determines trust across different developers, different teams that are consuming each other's APIs. One of the biggest reasons why microservices fail is because developers don't trust each other because they try to consume each other's APIs or microservices. And for some reason, the documentation is not up to date. It doesn't work. They can't do it. And so what, you know, when that happens, the developer will stop using other teams' APIs and they'll try to reinvent the wheel over and over again. And you know, it breaks down the trust within the organization. So the developer portal, but the documentation as well, it's becoming more and more of a critical component because it creates trust among the humans that are going to be consuming these microservices. And so what we are doing with Kong, it's sure, yeah, we're providing a traditional developer portal to create and enable onboarding and documentation for external developers. But first and foremost, we're also providing a developer portal that becomes a catalog of APIs and microservices that are being used within the organization. And and in order to make that documentation always accurate, we can, via our products, uh, Kongbrain, uh, it's one of our products, we can then auto-generate the documentation, but we can also alert the developers if whatever they've documented, it's not matching what we are seeing at runtime. So we're trying, we want to help the organization to have always, at any given time, the most accurate documentation. Because the most accurate it is, the most team productivity they get, and ultimately business value. It's, actually, I was going to ask you about Brain Next, so you started answering that already. Because um, this is something that is very appealing to someone like myself. Um, I'm quite big into uh automated testing especially of documentation i mean most developers test code these days but you can test all sorts of things um i might have to get a a demo account from you to test some of this because it looks um something i'd really like to to experiment with actually um so i was going to ask what brain was and you you pretty much answered already <laughs> um but um it, the the description says Intelligent automation to streamline service service deployment and management, which sounds like it does more than what you just described as well. So, is there more than just the testing of the? the yeah, yeah. So we so Kong Enterprise. It's made of several features. It's a platform. It's a full platform. Among those features, we have more security features. We have the developer portal. We have what we call Kong Vitals. We have Kong Manager. You know, it's a full uh, fledged platform. And among the features we provide in the enterprise platform, it's, uh, you, you can find Kong Brain and Kong Immunity. Kong Brain and Kong Immunity are our latest enterprise products that, uh, that basically allow the help the organization automate a few tasks. Kong Brain, it's all about documentation. 
how can Congrain auto generate the documentation, make sure the documentation is always valid, make sure that it's always up to date. And Kong Immunity instead is a feature which creates a machine learning model of the traffic across all the different services, all the different versions of those services in order to detect anomalies. The reason why we have created Kong Immunity is because the traditional way of securing traffic, WAF, the web application firewall, does not work well within east-west and microservices traffic. It doesn't work well for a few reasons. Number one, WAF, it's a very slow technology. I mean, the actual runtime is slow. And when we think about microservices, we want to have the highest performance in the world because uh, microservices break down if performance is not fast. You know, in a monolith, the monolith was, uh, was, um, was down when, the, when the, you know, the application was down when the monolith was down. But in a microservice-oriented architecture, the application is down when the monolith is slow because slow is the new down. You know, the, the more slow it is, the more harm we cause the end users. So how do we make this infrastructure as fast as possible? Well, certainly not by having a WAF firewall, which is a monolith closed source sometimes, you know, very traditional way of securing APIs. In the middle of that is West communication. So Kong, yeah. Kong Immunity asynchronously learns from the traffic that's going across all of these different services and then displays and visualizes anomalies that um, are, um, you know, we detect among either external or internal traffic, right? So for example, if there is a team that's doing something very wrong with another team's API or microservice, then we detect that and we visualize that. It's very important because uh, WAF, not only it's slow, but WAF is also a very reactive way of thinking of security. Every time you create a WAF, we put a WAF, WAF firewall somewhere, you have to create a rule set that you have to publish to the WAF firewall in order to prevent threats from happening. But imagine having 100 teams creating hundreds of th or thousands of services, and each one of these different services has different versions. For each one of these versions, you would have to have a different WAF rule set. It becomes unmaintainable. WAF really breaks down when we move from a handful of monoliths to hundreds or thousands of very fast, low latency microservices. It just breaks down. And so what we want to do is provide an alternative to that by creating automatically, asynchronously, with no performance loss, these machine learning models which allow to um, you know, detect anomalies within the traffic. But how, I mean, just, just skeptically speaking, how do you guarantee that Kong, especially, I suppose, your uh, enterprise offering doesn't become the, the thing that slows everything down as well? Because uh, everything we do, it's, uh, it's been built with that performance and platform agnosticity in mind. And I would say that this is one of the reasons why you never find a traditional, you know, API gateways used to be monolith, used to be, you know, if you think of, we compete against RPG, against MuleSoft. How many ESBs, how many ESBs have you seen in any architectural diagram that involves microservices? Like there is never an ESB in between that because they just don't enable microservices. In fact, they prevent microservices from happening. Kong was born after this microservices trend already started in 2015. Uh, Kubernetes was released in 2014, Docker in 2013. So we've built Kong with this new world in mind, with this new era of software in mind. And so we're building and we're very careful into building our features in such a way that they never, never 
um, add additional latency to the actual processing latency of our proxies, as well as they never, uh, they can always work asynchronously in a distributed and decoupled way. In fact, Kong is an API platform that can be centralized, can be decentralized, can run at the edge, or can run as a sidecar. It's a very small runtime. Yeah, one of our customers, uh, you know, we are a global company, so we work with a global community and we work with a global customer base. In fact, we have more than 130 enterprise customers, and these are top Fortune 500 or global 5,000 organizations that are using Kong to modernize and run their architecture on, you know, on modern platforms via Kong. Um, and among these customers, we have Rakuten. Rakuten is the largest e-commerce company of Japan, for example. They are running, they are running 140 policies on top, of, uh, on top of Kong. And these policies are being handled, uh, all of them, 150, in less than four or three milliseconds of latency. Right? So we are trying to optimize our system in such a way to enable that microservice transition, not to block it, like traditional API management providers do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, I mean, the, the the offering you have is, well, pretty pretty compelling in the way it all connects together. Um, as I say, I would love to experiment, see how this all looks kind of in the implementation, but... Um, I suppose what's, what's next, what's, what's next on your roadmap in the next six months or so? So we have a few things that, uh, we're going to be releasing. We're going to be releasing some new products, uh, mm-hmm. some new products that involve both, uh, you know, L4 traffic networking, uh, as well as enterprise products for our customers. But most importantly, we're going to be announcing these products at Kong Summit. Kong Summit is, um, our yearly conference in San Francisco in October 2nd and 3rd. And at the Kong Summit, we're going to be announcing, you know, new products. We're going to be announcing new enterprise features. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, Kong, Kong Summit is um, our yearly conference. This is the second time we do it. And uh, it's going to be about Kong users, Kong customers, enterprise architects, operators, and so on. And that was my interview with Marco Palladino of Kong. Now, I said I would mention my new show, The Enthusiastic Amateur. We now have a website, which will hopefully be live by the time you listen to this, theenthusiasticamateur.com. But a little inside secret is basically just a forward to the webpage on christianjella.com slash podcast slash The Enthusiastic Amateur anyway. And I have already interviewed a few people for the show. The show is basically, it's sort of two ideas. Uh, One idea is interviewing people who are very enthusiastic about a subject and uh, spend a lot of time getting, I guess, dealing with passion with that subject in their spare time. So that is the one group of people I'm interviewing and interested in speaking with. The second is if you are one of those people who wants to become passionate about a particular subject but don't know really where to start, I'm also going to interview experts in their field to tell you everything just about everything you need to know to get started in that field. So we're either talking with enthusiastic amateurs or talking to people who can help you become one yourself. So if you feel like you fit into either of those camps, I would love to hear from you. You can go to the enthusiasticamateur.com or the christianchiller.com website and there is a form there where you can submit your interest or you can tweet at me at Chris Chinch 
or find on my website many other ways of getting in touch. And I'd love to hear from you and maybe get you on a show in the future. It's only going to come out once a month, once every two months. So uh, it's not going to be anything particularly current affairs or anything like that. So it's not about promotion, about marketing. It's just about talking with passion about things that fascinate you. And that is another Weekly Squeak for this week. You can find previous shows at christiagella.com slash podcast and the accompanying newsletter at slash newsletters. You can tweet at me at Chris Chinch and find me on the internet in many places as Chris Chinch, Chris Chinchilla, one of those two. And yet again, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.